Well, first, before I talk about what the subject tonight, let me, if you don't mind, and this is the part you have to participate, can I see by a show of hands if you know who I am? Please raise your hand. Okay, about half. Okay, so then an introduction is probably in order. Yes, fair enough? Yep. Okay, so I'm uh, Chris White. I'm a retired U.S. Army colonel, 36 and a half years in the Army, 34 on active duty, two years in the Ohio National Guard. I went to university at the age of 17, and then after a year of university, realized that I wasn't ready for this. It's time to do something else. I enlisted in the Army and then went overseas and was a private, a sergeant, and then went back to university and was in the Ohio National Guard Reserve component while I was uh, at university. After two years, I returned to active duty as an intelligence officer. And during the course of my next 30 years, I served as a tactical intelligence officer, a strategic intelligence officer, a counterintelligence officer, and counterintelligence agent, badge and credential, a law enforcement official, and um, signals intelligence officer. I worked in the course of my career at the Defense Intelligence Agency, where I wrote for the President of the United States with President Daily Briefs, um, I, among other things. And then I worked at the National Security Agency, and I also worked U.S. European Command, U.S. Africa Command, and at the Pentagon, and my final assignment was the Director of African Studies at the U.S. Army War College. My tours of duty overseas include three tours in Germany as an enlisted soldier and non-commissioned officer, then as a company grade officer as a lieutenant captain, and then as a field grade officer as a lieutenant colonel in Bad Kreuznach, Gelnhausen, Hanau, and then Stuttgart, those assignments. I did a tour in Italy where I was the senior counterintelligence official for Southern Europe for the U.S. Army, and then... In Africa, I didn't visit, but lived and worked in the following countries. Tunisia, Liberia, Botswana, Malawi, Niger, Mauritania, Uganda, and Ethiopia, where I worked at the U.S. Mission to the African Union. Your current ambassador, Ruben Brigitte, American ambassador to South Africa, was my boss. He was my ambassador when it was the African Union a few years ago. Uh, so I worked, hopefully I'll be interviewing him in about a week or two when I'm up in Haltang. Uh, uh, I'm requesting the embassy's working on it, and that should be interesting if you want to hear his views. and answer some questions about, about what's going on. So um, I'm a published author in academic circles. I've been published most recently by Stellenbosch University, a project I worked on about US military in Africa. I'm working another project with them right now on intelligence services in Africa. I'm also published in popular press, um, Morning Shot, uh, the media company of Ramon Kavanagh here in South Africa, publishes my editorial and op-ed pieces frequently, and also published in mainstream media back, or as I call it, legacy media back in the States. And I'm a rugby journalist as well. Um, here in South Africa, on this tour, I have press credentials. I'll be going to the Stormers and the Bulls game at Loftus. I'll be wearing my Stormers colors, so I'll be practicing jujitsu <laughs> in Bull country. So I'll be ready for that, okay? Just saying. Because they're going to be coming after me wearing a Stormers jersey up there in the high belt. Now, I won't wear it that day, but I'll wear it as soon as we're done. We go back to the hotel for Stormers, beat them, and we have a couple, <laughs> couple Vinto bloggers. I don't drink costume, sorry. Uh, so, um, what else? Uh, I'm a polyglot. I speak six languages, three proficiently, three to varying degrees of proficiency. Three of them are African. So, when the race officers come after me, they lose the argument very quickly. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Uh, since I retired in 2019 from active service, I became an independent journalist and a consultant. The journalism was just going to be a side hobby, the consultancy was the big thing. But then, <laughs> spicy coffee. We're on YouTube. We got to be careful what said. Censorship. The spicy cough came along. When the spicy cough came along, I couldn't travel to Africa anymore because they shut down travel. So it's hard to convince people to invest in Africa by going Africa with them and showing them the advantages of it and how rising tide can lift all boats when you're on Zoom. It doesn't work so well. So those gigs all fell by the wayside, and I decided to focus on my media arm so that I could give people an opportunity to see what it is they're going to pay for if they pay for my services. 
And then I unintentionally sort of got this calling, I guess you can call it that. By default, when I grew from two to 23,000 subscribers on YouTube, 60% of my viewers were South Africans. They, they really took to my content, they really enjoyed it, and they really were, they, I don't want to get up here and boast, so if you watch my content, you'll know how, they, how, how loyal the audience is and how much they like it. Um, and so I really focused on that. I do something unique. I, I Well, I do a news program, that's not unique, but I do something in the world of media that no one else does that I'm aware of. I do a news program seven days a week, and I do it based on South African time. So it's always 6 p.m. your time. When, when we have daylight savings, I shift forward or backward. And um, I start with South Africa, and they cover South African news. What I typically do is take the mainstream media, the news reports, report the news, and then pull out their bias and tell you why it's not true or what is true or what they're trying to do here, and also comment on that. So then I go from that to SADC, the rest of Africa, going regionally, if there's newsworthy things worth talking about. Then the rest of the world, hotspots, places people forget about, like Myanmar, uh, Cabo Delgado, uh, Tigre, places like that. And then eventually I get back to the U.S. and I wrap up with U.S. news. And that's kind of how my news program goes every day. I do some other programs and I do a lot of prepared videos. Uh, and that's just a little bit about me. I guess that was kind of long. Is that okay? Yep. Now you know who I am. Okay. All right. You know I'm a Stormers fan, so I don't know if that fits with everybody here. But anyway. All right. Chinese <laughs> Sables fans here? Zimbabwe? Goldbitcha fans? Uh, and a Springback fan, of course. So let me just start before we talk about the topic at hand. Now that I've done an introduction about – oh, by the way, I make coffee nervous. I talk kind of fast. So if I'm going too fast, just raise your hand and tell me to slow down. Um, there's a lot that's come out. And since I was here last time, a few of you were here, you may have noticed something different about me. My, my beard is not down in my neck. Okay. United States is in recession, and so is my beard. <laughs> I cut it after Christmas, uh, after I played uh, Father Christmas for Christmas once again. And so it's in recession. That's what I tell people. Some people like it, some people are not happy that I cut my beard. Anyway, all right, here's the good news. And I know this audience will receive this news very well. I'll explain it from a legal standpoint and a moral standpoint. 50 years ago, our Supreme Court intruded and violated our Constitution. Their job is to uphold our Constitution by declaring laws that do not fit with the Constitution as unconstitutional, to ensure that the federal government doesn't overstep its role based on what the Constitution grants it. The Tenth Amendment to our Constitution expressly forbids the U.S. government from usurping powers from the individual sovereign 50 states that are not enumerated in the Constitution. So national defense, the common defense, federal government. Borders, federal government. That's responsibility of the federal government. Abortion is not a right or a legal concept that exists in the Constitution for the federal government. 50 years ago, an activist Supreme Court in the early 1970s had a Roe versus Wade case in which they allowed abortion to be legal in America. That was unconstitutional. Over 50 million Americans have been butchered in the womb since that date. 50 million. And by the way, for the race hustlers, one third of them were black. Black Americans make up 12 and a half percent of the population, but they make up one third of the abortions in our country. That's not a criticism. I'm not making moral judgment against black Americans. I'm just saying black lives matter. How about those black lives? How about those 50 million lives that have been exterminated in the womb? And our job when I defend the Constitution is to defend Americans, so I find it particularly reprehensible. But that was overturned last year in the Dobbs decision. And of course, the leftists lost their mind. They lost their mind. Oh my God, contraception will be illegal. You can't have contraception. Uh, interracial marriage will be illegal. It's not true. Gay marriage will be illegal. Well, that's a whole other subject. That's also unconstitutional for the federal government to weigh in, and they did. That might come later. But none of those things are illegal. And by the way, guess what else isn't illegal in America? 
abortion. Abortion is not illegal in America. Every state has abortion still. Some states have moved to restrict if and when you can have abortion, but it's not illegal in any state in America. And they lie to people, and they use that to affect the events in November. And I can't say more because I'm censored on YouTube if I use the wrong, wrong words. They affected the events in November last year by lying to Americans and hoodwinking them into thinking that some people made abortion illegal. They didn't. Many people are still trying to move for the people. But I just want to bring some good news. The states can now decide, and states are moving to restrict when people can end a human life. I, I hope that's good news to you. You have a March for Life. We have a March for Life every year in D.C. And as usual, hundreds of thousands of people turned out in wintertime to March for Life. It was very, it was very good and very joyous time this year because Roe versus Wade was overturned. So that's a little bit about that. I hope that um, that's okay. That I shared that with you. Yes. Okay. So let's go to the topic in hand. Now, this will work best if you have questions along the way. Okay. Don't hesitate to ask questions. There are no dumb questions except the ones you don't ask. How's that? Okay. The questions you don't ask are the dumb questions. Uh, because I have been doing geopolitical things and national level strategy at the highest levels in the U.S. government and with foreign actors for the better part of two and a half decades. So I'm very good usually at remembering that not everybody has that experience. But sometimes you forget and you start talking over here and your audience is like, what's he talking about? So feel free to ask me a question or if it's off topic, it's okay. This is going to be less formal than the last time, although that wasn't particularly formal last time. This is a little mm -hmm. less formal. And in that, uh, I thought this topic would be interesting because a lot of different actors are involved in effort. And many people ascribe motivations as to why they do it. And oftentimes those people are wrong because unless you really have insight, really have good insight into why actors are doing things or you know them personally, why they're doing it or they've intimated to you and they're honest, then you're not going to know what's really going on. So I'll talk a little bit about the United States, about the European Union, about Turkey. That might surprise you, Turkey. Also talk about the United Nations, Russia, of course, and the Middle Eastern countries. All of that will come in and we'll bounce around. So it's going to be kind of like a roller coaster ride. So if we bump off the tracks, just, you know, nudge me back on. Okay? Fair enough? Yep. All right. It's hot up here, so don't fall asleep because I'll wake you up. Just stop on the floor. Okay. So let's start with the United States. How is the United States involved in Africa and why? Does anybody know how the United States might be involved in Africa? This is where the university lecturer comes out. I'm going to ask you questions. So name a program we might do in the United States in Africa. USAID. USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development. They do development projects in Africa. There was a time when USAID was actual development officers and they actually went out there and, and did the things on the ground. Now they're most of the people that direct the resources and hire third parties to do things. But they still do good work. Good, good example. Yeah? What was the one I'm about to say? Okay. Anybody else? Yes, please. The American Corners and Libraries. Actually, that's something I wasn't going to mention. That's a very good idea. In every country, Normally, normally, there are exceptions where security is a problem. In nor every country, normally, we have the American Library or American Corners, sometimes it's called, where people in the host country can visit the embassy facility, and they have a library of American books and resources. Uh, also, for students who want to attend University of America, it's a good resource to go find out about how to apply and financial aid and loans and things like that, and that sort of thing. But the American Corners is a good example. Uh, a lot of people utilize that. When I lived in Tunisia, that place was packed every single day. I mean, it was overflowing with Tunisians who wanted to learn about America, they'd go there, read. Uh, we had lots of great resources, great American novelists, books on American history, and uh, and it was a fantastic resource. Well, that's a good one. And I wasn't thinking about that. Somebody else? Another way the U.S. is involved in Africa? Anybody? Militarily. Militarily? Okay. How so militarily? Uh, that's a big. That's a big field. So. Yep. Uh, 
I have no real idea exactly. Okay. Okay. Exactly where, but I think the wise are quite common uh, with regards to just maintaining some sort of uh, peace. Uh, okay. The whispers of uh, whether it's CIA involved or from what I've read. Um, okay. I really have no idea. Well, let me expand on that slightly. Okay. Uh, so yes, U.S. is involved militarily in Africa. Our, our biggest two things we do in Africa are attaché work, so liaison with host nation and others. And I did that in countries in Africa where I was an accredited attaché. And my responsibility would be to liaison, say, in Botswana with the Botswana Defense Force. And, and the reason we do that, the reason we have the Vienna Conventions for Diplomatic Relations is to reduce tensions and share information to hopefully avoid conflict. That, that's the main purpose of it. And also to facilitate trade and closer relations. That's why we have diplomats and trade officers and military attaches. So we do that, um, and we also have security assistance and security cooperation. So that involves um, sending foreign, foreign to us, your folks, and that's one other countries, uh, bringing foreign nationals to US training locations to be trained in US military programs. For instance, I taught at the Army War College, and every year we had uh, about 70 foreign students from around the world who participate in our work college. In part, that's because some countries are too small to afford a war college, so they send the folks to China, India, USA, Britain. Uh, also in part, because we hope to share the way we do business to reduce tensions so people understand where we're coming from and have sort of a level playing field amongst senior officers around the world. Uh, we also are involved in combat. I have to be honest about that. We went to Somalia in 1992 on a peacekeeping mission, actually really just trying to make sure food got through, and we wound up in combat eventually. So that's a role. We do counterterrorism in Africa. That's something we do. We help our part, our friends, partners, and allies. That's three different categories of people. Sometimes you have friends, sometimes you have partners, and sometimes you have allies. And allies are treaty allies. Uh, mostly in Africa, we have friends and partners, not really allies um, in, in the legal sense. So we work with them, providing assistance in counterterrorism, counterintelligence, sometimes, mostly counterterrorism. And sometimes we do those operations. Uh, we've also had things like the SEAL Team 6 went to Nigeria a couple years ago and rescued an American missionary who'd been kidnapped in Niger. They took him across the border. It was a ransom for money. The problem is that they just kill people at random if they don't get the money. They don't care. So the Nigerians authorized us to send SEAL Team 6 in on their own. Cleared it. They went and did a military operation and, and rescued the American and a couple others were there. So we do things like that too. Um, if there's a war in Africa and we wind up being involved in of course the military would be involved in that. But our main purpose in Africa, quite honestly, is um, Threefold ties and relations, so that we understand what's going on, and when things bad happen, we're able to respond and help people. And then providing assistance to professionalize and develop foreign security forces, primarily military, but also gendarmerie, that sort of thing. And then the third thing is um, we're really um, trying to also, honestly, get access. Right. So we do have agreements around the continent to for countries that will allow us to use facilities should we need to do something. So, for instance. We had to help Rwanda and Burundi go to the Central African Republic a couple years ago with peacekeepers. We used our C-17 aircraft, which were diverted from Dubai or the Emirates or something like that. That was uh, Oman. They were in Oman on an exercise. They came from Oman. They landed in Uganda. We had to agree to use the facility there so they could put their cots in there and they could store their water and their fuel and things like that. And they could purchase fuel or get it in trade. Uh, so that's access. And we have that for a variety of reasons. It's often portrayed dishonestly by uninformed, often leftist political pundits who claim that America has a strong base across Africa. That's a lie. It's a flat out lie. We have one military base in Africa. It's in Djibouti. It's called Camp Lemonier. It's been there since the, the war on terrorism began in 2002. 
We've had a treaty agreement with, um, or not a treaty agreement, a contract with the Jagushis. We pay them $50 million a year last time I checked. There might be more. It's the only base we have. There is, there's this rumor that's been going around for decades that the U.S. has a secret military base in Botswana. It's nonsense. I worked in Botswana. There's no base. There's an air base there called Tebe Patswana, which is the headquarters of the air arm. And we did give assistance, technical assistance, to help them build that base decades ago. But we don't have a base there. So anyway, that's a little bit about what we do military. Does that answer the question? Uh, yeah, I have two points. Just in Djibouti, do you have uh, the legions there, isn't it? The French Foreign Legion. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they're there now, but they rotate. And funny enough, Djibouti has become you know military central for Africa. The Japanese have an air base there. Japanese yeah. Self Defense Force has an air base there, yeah. right next to us. The U.S. has a base there. The French have always had a base there. Um, the Chinese have a naval base there now. That's right. So it's getting a little crowded in the restaurant. <laughs> so, so maybe we'll get more Chinese restaurants in Djibouti. I don't know. Yes, ma'am. The which group? I said that we provided transport for that mission. That's correct. Okay, so I got involved with this peacekeeping um, teams in Africa. Yes, the United States is involved, but we don't traditionally, there's been one or two exceptions, and those have been the last 30 years. We don't normally send U.S. troops under U.N. authority. We'll provide logistics, we'll provide administrative support, we'll provide funding, and we'll also move folks around. We do provide observers, though. So, for instance, there was observers from the United Nations between Eritrea and Ethiopia for a long time. I think they're still there. We had U.S. personnel there. The United Nations mission in Liberia, UNMIL, we had American military advisors who were part of that mission. They weren't combat troops. I mean, they're, they got uniforms, they're soldiers, they can defend themselves, but they're not a combat unit. So we, that's how we normally do peacekeeping in Africa. We normally facilitate it and fund it or we trade peacekeepers. Uh, the last time I checked, it's been two or three years ago, but the African Contingency Operations Training Assistance Program, or ACODA, ACODA, we always get complicated with military acronyms. That's actually a State Department program, and using our foreign assistance, we trained over 500,000 African soldiers to do peacekeeping to UN standards, because that's what we do. So we train, use US military, usually retired or military who are contractors who go in and teach them how to drill, how to build camps, security perimeters, how to do patrols, how to protect themselves, how to defend themselves, and, and how to do engagements and do medical evacuations, things like that. Does that answer? It does. But, but it raises another question. Okay. Can I ask you to Yes, you may. Yeah, it's because, so I'm from DRC. Yes. And we've been, we've had the peacekeeping the UN for a long time, mm -hmm. as long as I've been alive. Yep. And there's never been there. No? I just wonder if these guys actually are a scam. Well, I can't comment on the U.S. mission being a scam because it's actually got a few useful things, but, but I can comment a bit about some countries that contribute to it. The U.S. has not contributed to the Monarch mission. We've not been a participant in that mission. No. So we haven't been there. Uh, but there have been troops in some countries, like, I don't know, like right here, who've gone to the DRC and ran prostitution rings and sold their weapons and things like that and uniforms, uh, just saying. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the DRC peacekeeping mission. Um, I, I always wanted to like, not be the DRC government itself, because there is always this thing where they say, oh, he's a leaders on top of like, countries are controlled by someone or some people in the West. What do you think about that? Well, uh, what you're asking is if, uh, if some of the political leaders are controlled or influenced by the West. Yeah. Uh, all political leaders are influenced by other political leaders and by money around the world in one way or another. That's a statement of fact. How they respond to it, and if they're honest, is different. Um, 
that's a long discussion, a long lecture, and we'll probably hold that for another one, okay? Okay, fair enough. We'll hold that for another because that would, I could come and talk about that exclusively. About 2000, 2000, was it 2000, 2006, I think it was, when, uh, what was it? I'm trying to remember who the vice president was in DRC in Kinshasa. My friend was the attache there. I was working at the Defense Intelligence Agency. He called from the DRC. I'm at the American Ambassador's house. I said, okay, good for you. <laughs> That's nice. What's going on? He said, no, no, no. Don't you hear it? Did you hear the gunfire? Oh, yeah, I hear the gunfire now. What's going on? Oh, they, they just blew up the, the vice president's helicopter. You know, the security forces came here. So all the foreign ambassadors were at the American Ambassador's residence. Uh, at the vice president's house, the American ambassador invited them. They're all there, and they, they attacked the vice president. And so, you know, it's it's been a mess in DRC for a long time. So, but I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna step away from that because that's a hot potato that will take two hours just to get halfway through it. Fair enough. Okay. All right. We can talk offline afterwards if it's not too late. So, okay. So militarily, okay. I think I've addressed that pretty well. Yeah. How else do we get involved in that? For any other ways? Right here. With crime fighting, like the FBI, if there's any. Criminals that do stuff that affects U.S. citizens, then they do get involved. Potentially, yes. Um, like for instance, an American assassinated somewhere or something. Sometimes, with the host nation's permission, we'll send legal attaches over to deal with that. That happens. But also, we do training. We cooperate with international police forces and with national police forces. We have uh, the International Law Enforcement Academy, ILEA, in Botswana, just right down the road. And some South African police participate in it. They go there and learn international police standards and that sort of thing. So that, that's one way to do it. That's one way people never – you guys are sharp tonight. That's two things that I never would have brought up. Sir. Um, just – I don't think there's an involvement anymore, but I suppose gold doesn't ever tarnish. But did they take a shipment of gold for World War II from South Africa to pay for it? To pay for what? To pay for participation? Pay for the lease. The lease. The battleship called the U.S. Quincy. I'm not familiar with the story. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Uh, that was um, Winston Churchill required General Smuts, who had seized control of South Africa from the elected Prime Minister James Barry Herzog, who refused to declare war on Germany, and then one first executives put all the gold in South Africa on board the USS Quincy to go to New York to pay for their lease. And uh, until the gold arrived in New York, America didn't start lending to Britain on. So something gold, this was the secret for decades. Mm. It came out from director of the Southern Reserve Bank, Stephen Mitchell Goodson, and Patrick Cannon put it in this uh, book on the unnecessary war. Uh, okay, now I've explained, I'm more familiar with it. I'm not a Southern matter expert, but what I can tell you is that, is that at least the Brits was delayed, possibly because of that, but also because uh, we betrayed the Brits and gave Lendlease to the Soviets first. We, we delayed shipments that were intended for the United Kingdom to defend the United Kingdom and equip their forces by sending it to Archangels and to um, Vladivostok, primary Archangels, and equipping the Soviet forces when the Germans attacked them. Uh, and that had a big impact on how long it took to get British forces reconstituted and trained. But the goal, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the story, but I have heard that before, so not expert. I'm talking in contemporary sense, though. That's historical. I'm, I'm trying to talk contemporary, but that's a good point to bring up. Thank you. Any other ways we do something? There's a huge one in South Africa. What's the most pressing health issue in this country, according to many people? HIV. HIV. The President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief. President George W. Bush created this program back in 2003, and originally it was supposed to be $5 billion for three billion, $3 billion for five years. $3 billion a year for five years, so $15 billion is what it was supposed to be. The program has now existed since 2003, two decades, and Unequivocally, 
anyone that thinks they can argue otherwise doesn't understand HIV in Africa or doesn't understand the impact of that money. That money has had a tremendous impact in multiple countries in, South, in, in Africa, excuse me, in reducing the rate of, of, of transmission, in reducing um, the incidence of HIV, and helping countries develop plans and bring the resources. The problem is that it was the president's emergency program. Now I call it the president's enduring program for AIDS relief. We're on the hook because we started buying antiretrovirals. You can't simply buy people antiretrovirals if they rely on that and they just turn it off. That's immoral. So we're kind of stuck with that obligation now. Uh, but that's a huge program. We spend billions of dollars a year. 85% of the money on PEPFAR is spent in Africa. And most of that is spent in SADA, in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, in Botswana, in Namibia, and uh, in Eswatini, e-commerce capital of Africa. <laughs> so... Sorry about that, King. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so that's that's a big one too. Uh, Pet for yes, ma'am. What are the chances that that money is used by the US Zero, zero. It doesn't go to African governments. Not one penny goes to the African government. Not one penny of Pet for. I ran Pet for programs. No penny, no money goes to them. No. Because we make the payments directly to the people that are involved in it. In it. I ran HIV programs in Botswana, in Malawi, in, uh, Malawi, in Niger, and Mauritania. Not one cent went to any government official. Every now, now that leaves another question: Are the non-governmental agencies and actors we're dealing with are they honest and legitimate? That's a whole other story. They normally are, but there there could be fraud. But not one penny goes to governments. That's not direct assistance to governments. That's assistance to third parties. So people, I hear all the time on my channel, people are like, oh, you know, the U.S. gives South Africa all these billions of dollars. Well, we do give South Africa some direct assistance, like military training, but that's like. A couple hundred thousand a million dollars a year. We get billions to fight HIV. That's a big difference. Okay, good question. Any other ways we help? Oh, wow. We're involved. Anyway, <laughs> not necessarily help, involved. Okay, that kind of covers it. The other piece is we, we participate in trying to foster peace develop. Yes, Dr. Owen. Uh, dare I ask, uh, would America involve, involve things like toppling government's regime control, regime change, and <laughs> 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 Sorry, what was your question? <laughs> uh, legally, no. Legally, no. We passed the law in the 1970s because we used to try to assassinate foreign leaders. I said legally. Um, I'm not aware, honestly, aware of an instance in which we've done that in Africa post Cold War. Post Cold War. Oh. I, I, give, I give a date. I give that, a date. That, that it does throw a very solid line. Uh, we can certainly talk about places where we certainly were involved in that prior to that, but yet post-Cold War, I'm not aware of it. That doesn't mean my government hasn't done it. It just means I'm not aware of it. Now, I may be an intelligence professional and an intelligence analyst and a senior military officer, but I'm not privy to everything. So, But I don't believe we actually have. Uh, we, we've been involved. We've been accused of things, and we've picked sides. That's true. But um, I'm not aware that we've done that. So, okay. All right. That's the U.S. a little bit. Let's talk about China. So, What's that? We were just talking about Gaddafi and Savimbi, and when CIA headed up Savimbi, obviously, you know, I know people who came out of looking for fighting for That was post-Cold War. Post-Cold War. Yes. Oh, you say was that? Yeah, but that did not overthrow the government in goal. That assassinated Joseph yeah. Savimbi. Yeah. And was the Israelis not involved in that? I don't know. Let's 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 cap that one, okay? <laughs> we'll move to China. All right, so if I ask you China's involvement in Africa, is it a good thing? Let's see how many hands go up. I think, I think there is a good and bad side, but I think it 
the bad side can outweigh. Okay. So is it a bad thing? Raise your hands if you think it's a bad thing. Okay, about two thirds rate. Okay. Um, China's run by a totalitarian fascist communist government. Okay? Yeah. Right? That's how I feel about them. That said, they have done good things in Africa for Africans. It's true. They have to be honest about it. They've also done horrible things in Africa. Okay? At the state level and at the private enterprise level, if such a thing exists in China under its quasi mercantilist communist state. Just a moment. So they've done good things in Athens. For instance, they built parliament buildings, they built roads, but they've also built roads that I lived on in Liberia, which were lovely for three weeks. And when the rains came, the half inch or two centimeters of coal tar washed away, and we had trenches once again in a matter of months. Uh, but they are capable of building amazing things, and they've done it. The African Union building in Addis Ababa, where I used to work, lovely building, wonderful. It's fantastic for spies. I told people that. I used to have people from other countries want to talk to me. I said, let's not talk here. Let's go to a restaurant. It's safer there. What are you talking about? Dude, there's like listening devices, cameras everywhere here. No, there's not. After I left the African Union a few years later, it was disclosed publicly. The Chinese had listening devices and um, cameras all over the African Union buildings. Now, why would that matter? That means that the Africans who were trying to have private discussions and leverage a, a combined interest with China to negotiate something are now at a disadvantage because now they're your strengths and weaknesses. So the Chinese can sit there and go, no, 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 because they know when you'll give. You are entitled to your secrecy to negotiate. Um, yeah, so you had a question before getting further. Well, the Malawi parliamentary building is fantastic. The African Union headquarters is fantastic. Uh, they have um, put a lot of investment into many corporations, particularly textile corporations, that employ tens of thousands of people across Africa. Whether those people make a living wage or not, that's a different discussion. Okay, different discussion. You see, everything you talk about has multiple avenues you can talk about it. Uh, no, they've done some good things in Africa. They, they participated in peacekeeping. They were good, a force for good in Somalia and Sudan, excuse me, not Somalia, in Sudan, South Sudan. They've also been a force for good in peacekeeping in Liberia. They were actually very effective there and they were very helpful there. Um, but of course, they've also been involved in some very nefarious things. And my problem with China for most of the last two decades is that the Chinese manufacturing sector treated Africa as a dumping ground for its inferior consumer goods. So they send you flip-flops that are toxic and fall apart, like mine. Toe keeps coming out the tongue. They send you that to Africa, not the quality stuff. The Chinese are capable of making top-quality mobile phones, top-quality televisions, not great top-quality cars, but that'll be coming soon enough. And I wouldn't fly one of their planes, but that's your choice. Uh, but uh, they are capable of building some of the best things and delivering some of the best things. But they're also capable of dumping the worst garbage. Chinese uh, manufacturing companies sent tainted pet food to America, which killed millions of our pets by destroying their kidneys because it had, I think, F and Y call or something like that, antifreeze in it, I don't know, something like that. Um, that happened because there's no proper oversight. So why is China in Africa? Anybody want to take a guess why? Minerals. Natural resources. Okay, sure, fair. Good. Okay, anything else? Military advantage. Sorry? Military advantage. Military advantage over who? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's why I'm here, right? I'm supposed to answer that question. Okay, we'll get back to that. Yes? Spine. Spine? Okay. Hey, here's a little secret. Stick with me, audience. I'm going to be off camera. I'll tell you when I come back. Let me, here's a little secret. You probably don't know this, but every country in the world spies on every other country in the world. Even UK spies in the US and US spies in the UK. I didn't say that out loud. Is that on camera? Anyway, everybody spies on each other in one form or another. 
even Switzerland, especially Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best defended countries in the world. They have jet fighters buried in mountains and are ready to roll out. During the Second World War, they shot down Allied and Nazi planes and took the crews prisoner of war and kept them there for the duration of war. They take the neutrality very seriously. Three times in the past 50 years, they've had referendums to end conscription. And three times, they said, no, keep the military. Yes, they do have bunkers everywhere. That's a nice thing. We have mountains everywhere. So you can hide money, you can hide soldiers, you can hide ammunition. Anyway, uh, yeah, so every country spots. Um, okay, China might want to for spying. Did you have points, sir? Let me just start just stretching it. Sorry. <laughs> Anyone else? Why else would China be interested in Africa? Anybody? Yes, sir. That's uh, a place for people uh, to be expatriated to relieve, alleviate pressure. Country of 1.5, 1.6 billion people overcrowded much of the country. Uh, but more specifically, I'll take that point. It's a great place to send lots of university educated graduates who can't be effectively employed because your economy is saturated with engineers, with doctors, with technicians. You can send them to another place that's desperately in need of those skills. And that's, yeah, there, who knows how many Chinese nationals live in Africa now? It's over a million. It's over a million. I, you know, I lived in Africa for much of the last 20 years. Everywhere I go, I was like, oh, colonialism, neocolonialism, the, the Western colonizing Africa. Like, show me where are the closed communities of American living or French or Brits living together, isolated with walls around. Now, Saudi Arabia, that's a different story. But in Africa, show me where that's at. Everywhere in Africa, I live here. My, name, my, my other people in the embassy work two miles away. These people are here. We don't live in little cloisters. We live amongst the population. But the Chinese tend to cluster together. They tend to take resources from that, and then they ship it back home. And that's an overgeneralization, but not entirely. Um, the colonization of Africa in the 21st century is not the West. It's the Chinese. Physically, in the form of homo sapiens, depositing themselves down in communities all over Africa. Not saying that's a good thing, not saying it's a bad thing. It's a statement of fact. There's a question over here. In Zimbabwe, apparently, there's a huge community of Africans. Yes, ma'am. Most people don't know about it. There's a huge community of, well, yeah, because they're cloistered little, no one has any idea how many arrivals are. Look, I flew Air One a few years ago. I was the only Anglo-Saxon on the plane, and there were only four black Africans on the plane. Air One, and everyone else was Chinese. And they weren't all from one mining company. There's all Chinese flying on Air One around East Africa. Yeah, it's also in Zambia, the Copper Belt. They've had they've had xenophobic attacks against the Chinese in the Copper Belt in the past. So there are a lot of Chinese in Africa. I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's bad. But yes, it's a place for them to offload or dump human capital which could be for the benefit of Africans, or maybe it's not, if you displace people who are in the indigenous economy. Any other ideas why China might be interested in Africa? I'll come back to the military. Piece. Okay, Chris, is there any truth in the fact that uh, they dumped a lot of their low-key prisoners into Africa and gave them an option to stay there and not ever come back? Or? Yeah, there's a lot of innuendo and a lot of rumor and supposition about that. I can tell you that I know at least two cases in Africa in the not too distant past in which that was true. Um, building railways in parts of Africa was largely convict labor that was sent by the Chinese. And in the case of Botswana, they impregnated a number of local San women and left behind mixed race kids and abandoned and went back to China. Don't even know about that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yes, Dr. Ken Monos mentioned ivory uh, and form. Sure. Sure. Violation of the CITES Agreement, Convention on the International Trade of Dangerous Species. Yeah, China plays a big role in that. Here, you want to, okay, two things. If you want to stop the farm invasions in Zimbabwe in 2000, you know how you stopped it? I'll tell you how you stop it. The U.S. flies a C-130 Harari with $1 billion in cash bills and hands it off to Mugabe and Zanapia from the farms and never invaded. 
That's the first thing. You want to stop the, the trade in a uh, rider horn in China? Give away free Viagra. Yeah. Seriously. Seriously. It's going to work. That's what they use the stuff for. Yeah. Yeah. I'm being a little facetious, but there's a lot of truth in those two statements. A lot of truth. If we just given cash to Zanapia and bought them off, um, life would have been so bad for it. Martin Olds and Dave Stevenson and others who lost their lives tragically in a horrific um, human rights violation. So, um, okay, so China and Africa. They're interested in markets. They're looking for a place to trade their goods. They're interested in the Belt and Road Initiative. You might have heard about that, right? So this is an awesome deal. This is why, by the way, this is all my opinions. You know, these are my views. It comes from my experience, my analysis. So you don't have to believe it. Um, you can believe if you like. I hope that you believe it. I hope that you listen. I want you to think critically about it. The Chinese... Um, are looking for a place to sell their goods. That's fine. Everyone wants to trade. I understand that. They're the world's largest trading nation now, and they're wholly dependent on trade. You know, people talk about a war. Who's going to suffer the most? China will. Because the Chinese won't get any resources, and they'll starve to death. They can't feed themselves. Their economy can't survive without the import of oil and coal from South Africa and other places. They would freeze and go hungry. And they wouldn't have any money in short order, because if they try to call in their U.S. bonds and we're at war with them, we're not going to give them money for all the debt they owe. That's not going to happen. So they don't want a war, despite the fact that people are talking about that. They are aggressive, though. But they want a place for their goods to go. And um, the other thing about the Chinese is that they, um, they have this Belt and Road Initiative, and this is a really good deal for them. So they've convinced countries around the world that they should become part of this global network of trade, kind of like the ancient Silk Road that went through Central Asia and came to the Middle East and Europe, uh, where caravans of camels and things went and carried spices and silk and things, hence the name Silk Road. And that was a, a very, uh, as you say in German, all trading um, pattern that, that was disrupted by the Mongols and others later on. But um, they want this Belt and Road Initiative in which they build ports, they build airfields, they build roads all around Central Asia, the Middle East, Africa. But who builds the roads, the ports, and the airfields? Is it a South African firm? Is it an American firm? It's a Chinese firm. So the contract goes to Chinese companies. Whom do they employ overwhelmingly? Chinese nationals. Who makes the loan to borrow the money to build the port? No, no. The local country. So you go in debt to have a Chinese company build a port, which ostensibly you're going to benefit from a trade. But now for 30 years, you're paying off a loan and the Chinese are profiting from it. Who gets the contracts to run these ports? The Chinese. Now, I ask you, how good a deal is that? I got a deal for you. I want you to be part of my trading network. We're going to build a port here just north of Cape Town. Take a loan from our bank. We'll build it. We'll man it. You pay us a fee to run it. I think it's a pretty good deal. That's what they're doing. And most of the world is just completely ignorant and stupid of it. They're not bright enough to realize, well, we want to be part of this. And that's what's happening. Uh, that doesn't make it evil. It just makes the Chinese very smart. Very smart. Very smart. So uh, that's something they're doing. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit to the European Union. Okay? European Union. Now, that's a beast, okay? That is a group of 26 nations in Europe who have surrendered large degrees of their own sovereignty to a multilateralist. It's not the United States of Europe. It doesn't have that legal right, but they have voluntarily surrendered much of their sovereignty to the European Union. So much so that there's been an allergic reaction. The Brits smartly withdrew from, although they're dwaddling now and dragging their feet. The Danes have talked about leaving the European Union. They're not alone. So in some countries, they've never joined, like the Swiss. They haven't joined. They have a special relationship. So what might the European Union have an interest in Africa? 
Now, individual countries, Germany, France, UK, because they're still kind of tied to it, uh, then they have their own interest in Africa, Italy. But as a union, European Union, what interest do they have in Africa? Any thoughts? Telecommunications? Sure. IT and stuff like that. Absolutely. There's big European telecom, Ericsson, that's one of them, right? Big telecommunications co company, they're interested in that, absolutely. So commerce and IT. Anything else? Markets for their goods, yeah. Europe is, the European countries are among the largest trading partners with uh, with Africa after China and the United States. Mining. Mining, yes, of course, mining. Yeah, we can say that so far for every entity, right, so far. What else? Raw materials. But I guess that's kind of like mining, so like, yeah, raw materials, more right, yeah, so. Um, what about military? The European Union doesn't have an army. Well, NATO is. That has nothing to do with the European Union. Nothing to do with the European Union. North Atlantic Treaty Organization is separate from, there are many members of the European Union who are NATO members, but they're not, the two aren't the same. We have an ambassador from the United States to the European Union. We have an ambassador to Brazil, to Belgium, sorry, and to NATO. All three sit in Brussels and all three have very separate portfolios and they all deal with different things. Now, uh, that's a clear distinction. That's important. Uh, and that reminds me, I need to make a distinction between the African Union and the European Union. We'll come back to that. I'm glad you actually said that. So you're saying basically NATO has no footprint in the, the EU whatsoever. There's no, even a slight amalgamation between the two. There's no amalgamation whatsoever. Um, so, there yeah. are NATO countries that are part of, of the European Union, and there are U.S. forces based in some NATO countries like Germany and Italy <coughs> and the U.K. Uh, but but the, no, there's, there's no military hierarchy. There's no overlinking. There's no agreements. There's nothing whatsoever. For instance, in the DRC, the Germans and French deployed under a U4 force to Kinshasa in 2006 or something like that. They did that independently of NATO, even though they're both NATO members. France is still a NATO member. People don't think they are, but they are. They're not just part of the military chain of command. They pulled the force of that chain of command, but they're part of NATO. So the French and Germans sent a combined brigade or battalion to the DRC for a short period of time as a peacekeeping force um, when that incident I talked about occurred. So that had nothing to do with NATO whatsoever. No say in it whatsoever. Fair enough? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions because the way the newspapers throw terms around and the way that some pundits talk about things, but they're two very different things. Um, big NATO, my assessment, is a little concerned about the rise of military issues within the European Union because they see it as a competition to NATO because you have members that are part of both. And who will they support? In the case of the Germans and the French sending troops to the DRC, clearly they supported an EU mission and they weren't focused on NATO. And so there's that little bit of competition right there. NATO is involved in Africa. NATO has a liaison office with the African Union on South I used to work with them. And um, they're also were very unpopular because of the NATO bombing of Libya. So um, and that made them very unpopular with the African Union for a while. Uh, yeah, so uh, Europeans do have a military interest. They have trained the Somali National Force when I was in Uganda. Uh, ironically, of all the things I've done in my life, the strangest thing I ever did, I think, well, maybe one of the strangest things, is I was the paymaster for the Somali National Force. When I was in Uganda, it was my responsibility to review all of the soldiers in the nascent Somali National Force, which was being trained not in Somalia, but in Uganda, by Ugandan forces, assisted by the European Union. So they had Greeks and French and Dutch and Germans and Brits all there on the staff, and we funded it. So all the training costs, the fuel, the lights, the meals, the rations, the military you know, uniforms, stuff like that, we pay for that, and the salaries of the Somali soldiers back in 2000, when was this, 2013, 2014. And so every month I had to review and approve the payments to all the Somali soldiers, the recruits. 
Uh, so they're involved in that. They have a European Union training force that's based at the Mogadishu National Airport, MIA, in Somalia. So they have been involved militarily in that standpoint. So these are the blue helmets? No, they're not the blue helmets. That's completely separate. It's yet another actor. That's why I thought it was important to talk about foreign interventions in Africa. And we're going to get to the blue helmets here shortly after the EU. So yeah, that's separate. So you have bilateral intervention. The U.S. goes to Somalia, 25,000 troops, October 3rd, 1992. Bilateral. No NATO involvement. No, no African Union, there was no African Union, no OAU, or just, nobody. We did that bilateral. Then you have this uh, this multilateral approach where you have the United Nations, you have the African Union, you have the European Union, those are multilateral approaches. And um, yeah, so there's that. Uh, so the European Union has interest in markets, IT, communications, trade agreements, raw materials, pretty much the things we talked about. Um, there are a few other things. They also have space interests. European Union, European Union, or European space agencies are very much interested in Africa for space you know, first exploring space. Uh, South Africa is a fantastic place for telescopes. There's some down here. Could the European Union be involved in collecting refugees and taking them to Europe? That's an interesting question, but my experience is that most of the European Union is trying to not get refugees to come to Europe. Um, individual countries are allowing that, like Angela Merkel, allowed Europe to be flooded by millions of people uh, a few years ago, which angered Hungary and another, a bunch of other countries. But no, the European Union uh, actually, as an entity, is not making that effort to my knowledge. And who does that? Because the UN helps with that. The UN helps with what? Who does the, like, help? Uh, not to the United Nations, okay? So the United Nations is an actor involved in African involvement through development assistance, through UNICEF, cultural programs, through peacekeeping especially. All these are United Nations activities. Uh, the biggest contributor to the United Nations budget is the United States, pay about 18% of its budget. And we are the largest contributor to peacekeeping funding. Uh, but other countries all participate based on their size, uh, with some exceptions. China doesn't pay its fair share. They need to start paying more. Um, the United Nations does many activities, and you're talking about the United Nations uh, High, Commission, High Commissioner for Refugees. And that office and that person, which is an ambassador level position, treat as an ambassador that kind of equivalent treatment when you go abroad. Uh, is responsible for these missions and camps, like in Kenya. We have 200,000 people living in a refugee camp. They've been there for 30 years. Uh, and then we have uh, refugees in other places. Some countries bilaterally have refugee camps. Botswana has been hosting 5,000 Somalis since the early 1990s in a camp, and they don't let them out of it. They're not too happy. I can understand that. Uh, but um, but the United Nations is the agency responsible for these, these, these um, refugee actions you're talking about. But those refugee actions are not a re are not sending people to Europe. That's uh, hopefully repatriating them to their homes, their home countries. But that rarely happens, let's be honest. Very few refugees ever go home. 13 million ethnic Germans were evicted from Eastern Europe in territory that belonged to Germany at the end of the Second World War. Four million of them were killed or murdered along the way. So nine million escaped to the West. None of them ever went back. Not a single one. Not a single one. Uh, so refugees rarely go back. All the Ukrainians that have fled Ukraine, they're not going. Welcome to the UK. Enjoy your life here. The Afghans, 100,000 Afghans, because of Joe Biden's cowardice and lies about Afghanistan, that now reside in America. Welcome to America. They're never going back. Never going yeah, back. It's real. The wall, What's that? I said not to mention the wall. Which wall? Mexico. Oh, well, there is no wall. It's only partially built. Yeah. It's part of the problem, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other situation. But those aren't refugees. Those are fraudulent asylum seekers. People abusing the system of asylum. I'll touch on that very briefly now since we mentioned refugees. There's a distinction between IDPs, internally displaced persons within a country, 
where people aren't safe, like in Ethiopia, Tigrayans aren't safe there. They could be somewhere else that's internally displaced persons. And then refugees, refugees cross borders. They go to different countries. Um, Uganda, for instance, has refugees from South Sudan. It has refugees from the DRC. It has refugees from the Central African Republic, all of whom they host in Uganda. Uh, and they get assistance and money from the United Nations to help facilitate that. Uh, it depends on how the host country treats it. But usually in Africa, they, people wind up in camps. They wind up there for years. A Polisario in Western Sahara have been living in Algeria, southern Algeria, for 50 years as refugees. And um, his Morocco claims Western Sahara, so they're not going back. Um, I hope that answered the question. Okay. All right. So the United Nations. The United Nations does food relief. They do cultural exchanges. They do advice and assistance. They have economic development. The, uh, they have an economic development commission that's based in Addis Ababa. They have an office in Addis Ababa for other things. Uh, that's one of their biggest United Nations offices in the world is located in Africa. One in Geneva, one in, in uh, Addis Ababa, and the other, of course, the name of New York. They have other operations, but that's their main big offices. And the one in Africa is focused on development. So that's the United Nations. Um, we can sit here and argue why the United Nations does what it does and why it doesn't do what it doesn't do. That would take days and weeks and months to talk about that. And we could attribute values and intent. Um, but the United Nations is an international body uh, comprised of all these different countries. The Security Council is there to make decisions. And the General Assembly makes decisions. And it's done by uh, consensus largely. We have to have the majority vote for them. How do they benefit from this? Who? Well, in theory, it's, it's a good, it's a social good that they feel. That's the theory. However, um, it's a big employer. People work for the United Nations. They carry blue passports to get them the door anywhere they get treated like royalty at airports in Africa. Trust me, I carry a diplomatic passport forever in Africa. Most times, I'm treated like crap when I walk up to a, to a customs immigration in Africa. But when I walk to the dip line with my black passport, the United Nations has a big power blue. I'm black. The U.S., you get treated very differently. Um, Anyway, uh, there, there's, there's, it's a huge machine of money, billions of dollars, funds the United Nations from all over the world. And they do very good things. There are some very good things the United Nations, particularly UNICEF. UNICEF has amazing programs. Um, and they also have, they do research. They've done, the United Nations uh, annual report on HIV is, is, I don't want to say the gold standard, but one of the most reliable and accurate reports on the status of HIV around the planet, among many things they do. They're also responsible <laughs> 15 years ago, I would have proudly said that um, I think they did a great job with the World Health Organization. But in the past 40 years, I've changed my view on the World Health Organization. Dr. Tedros, cholera, Dr. Tedros. Anyway, uh, yeah, so um, yeah, it's uh, all of that falls on the United Nations. So, uh, but it's difficult to attribute intent or why people do things other than what their charter says. We have to live by that. If they don't follow it, then we can look for intent. Let me give you an example, okay? Ready for an example? All right. 1990s, before Yugoslavia was falling apart, okay? Um, we had F-16s from Aviano Air Base that were supporting a NATO mission in the Balkans over former Yugoslavia, over Bosnia. They were flying air cap missions. In other words, responding to a call. So they're in the air 24 hours a day, a couple planes. The Dutch peacekeepers requested air support when the Serbs surrounded them in Srebrenica. They were denied air support by the Air Control Center. They relied, relayed their request to the United Nations Department of Peacekeeping Operations in New York. Kofi Annan refused to allow our aircraft to interdict and save the lives of 7,000 men and boys who were executed by the Serbs. 7,000 butchered in Srebrenica. I take it those, those boys and men were Muslims. Yes, most of them were secular Muslims. They didn't really practice Muslims. They were just for 
lack of a better term, Bosniaks. That's a term they came up with later on. Most of the Muslims in Bosnia weren't devout Muslims. They weren't practicing Muslims. They were just, just by designation because under the Ottoman Empire, you couldn't own property at certain stages unless you were Muslim. You couldn't prosper unless you were Muslim. And so a lot of people converted for you know convenience. But there were devout Muslims. Don't get me wrong there. And also the Mujahideen also came in there too at one point. There were 150 Mujahideen fighters. I know because I ran across them in Bosnia when I was there. But um, the United Nations peacekeeping organization prevented the engagement with the Serbs. And for whatever reason, Kofi Annan did that. In my view, he's a war criminal, not a hero. He's a war criminal. Crimes against humanity were committed because he failed to allow what had been authorized by the United Nations Security Council. They were authorized to intervene to protect people. So he had the fun with Egypt? And he had assistance from Bill Clinton and Madeline Albright. I should say, Kofi Annan was involved in far worse. In yes, Rwanda. I just gave one example. In Rwanda, Rwanda yes. he strangled uh, General Rodi of Delhi to save lives and hundreds of thousands. That's true. Yep. I've, I've talked and met with General Delia, the Canadian officer, who's still heartbroken over what happened. Um, for a long time before I met him, I had a hard time forgiving him because of what happened to the Belgian peacekeepers uh, when they went to the vice president or prime, deputy minister, prime, whatever that role was. Um, there are two Belgian peacekeepers there, and he went there to negotiate the release and left without them when he had the high ground. And they, they actually, by all accounts, were present. They were a little nervous about his presence and probably let him go. But he didn't push. And after he left, they murdered the two Belgian peacekeepers. So as a leader, I, I always – I kept – it's unfair. I wasn't in issues, but I always question, you know, that – and speaking of Gerald Allier, uh, he's still haunted by that, uh, to be fair. Uh, but yes, the, the, he was hand, hamstrung. He was hampered. Um, and that was, again, Madeleine Albright and Bill Clinton played a big role in that. He wrote um, a book, did he? Who's that? Dahlia? Yes, Shake, he did. Shake hands with the Take hands with the devil. Yes, I have the book. Now, now was there like, an agenda that was either open or hidden with regards to Albright? No, I, 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 I honestly. That Kofi Annan, was there some. Was there an agenda? Yeah. Now, my, my, my personal analysis, having lived through the events, by the way, I was <laughs> about to get on a plane to go to Rwanda because we had a mission from Germany, an aviation unit, to fly down there and evacuate, do a non-combat evacuation of Americans and French and others out of there. Remember, they were locking up Catholic nuns and burning them in churches yeah. in harbor uh, when they weren't hacking people to death. Um, I don't attribute it to malicious intent. I attribute it to um, a combination of arrogance, naivete, and a fear of doing something that would look bad. All of that, I think, played a role. I don't think that they intentionally had malicious intent for all those people to die, uh, but they lie, and that does not forgive their actions. So, for instance, when we hear after the fact that we didn't know that it was a genocide, I watched bodies floating down the river on CNN and on AFP and the French news agency while it was happening. For six weeks, my unit had an order to go, and we were held up and didn't go. Now, we weren't going to stop the killing. We were going to get people out of it. So when people tell you after the fact that these politicians, they didn't know there's genocide, they're liars. You and I didn't have access to top secret classified information and information that they had, which is far better detail from human sources, from electronic sources. We didn't have that. But we saw the news, and they denied there was a genocide. So, yes, um, some evil, evil, callous, callous things done by people in the United Nations and in my government at that time. And that's my assessment. I hope that helps. Yeah. Okay. All right, but the UN does do good things in Africa. Don't dismiss them entirely. I'm not here to shield for the United Nations. Uh, I've worked with them. Um, it's a big organization, it's bureaucracy. And um, they do something. Okay, uh, let me give you a surprise entry here. Turkey, Turkey. No, not stuff you eat, thanks to you. 
<laughs> or Christmas. You guys don't have Thanksgiving. Yeah, I don't know if the dog, you know. Anyway, but uh, you, don't eat that, you don't eat turkey for that. But uh, not what you eat at Christmas, but the turkey, the country. Turkey has the second largest number of diplomatic missions across Africa. Who's the largest number of missions or country in Africa that has embassies and diplomatic missions? Who do you think? China. China? Good guess. Wrong. What was that? Uh, too fast. That's correct. <laughs> we have the most diplomatic missions across Africa, followed by Turkey. China comes after that. Usually, 20 years ago, people say Britain or France because of the colonial history. Not the case. Yeah. We were the first, by the way, we were the first to establish a mission to the African Union. The first embassy to the African Union was the United States. That won't get you a free cup of coffee. It's just a nice piece of trivia. Anyway, but Turkey uh, has been heavily engaged in Africa in economics. The Turkish Airlines is flying all over the Sahel and all over North Africa now. They are expanding. And it's been good for Africans. It's brought down ticket prices. It's expanded the number of trips are available. So you can get from place to place. And when I started traveling in Africa going on 30 years ago, my goodness, in order to get from Ghana to Ivory Coast, I had to fly to Switzerland. True story. True story. I had to fly to Switzerland. And then fly back overnight, which was kind of cool. I get to hang out. They pay for the hotel. But then and fly right back to the next the state right next to it. That's crazy. Or drive. For, uh, Drive across bumpy or non-existent roads in a, in a four-wheel drive. So that's how you got. Now you can fly all over the place because of Turkish Airlines, because of um, because of uh, Ethiopian, which expanded as well, and because of Brussels. They're the three big ones. But there's others coming in now. So Emirates comes to Southern Africa and Kenya, places like that. But um, Turkey has had a big role. Turkey is deeply involved in economics. They run big factories and plants all over Ethiopia. They produce agricultural products. They they, they ship their. They have a huge agricultural sector. They ship it down to Africa, particularly East Africa, but they're expanding. And Turkey's also deeply involved in military activities of Somalia, as are the United Arab Emirates. So that's Turkey, which surprised a lot of people. There's other actors, multinational corporations that are involved here, like uh, Barrick and others who do things in Africa. Um, and there's some pretty obvious reasons why they, they're doing that. They're looking for resources for markets, for growth, that sort of thing. Um, there are arms dealers. You know, in fact, we just released one of them, one of the world's most notorious arms dealers for a uh, unpatriotic American who hates America, a basketball player, Brittany Griner. We traded Victor Belt for her, Victor Booth for her. Anyway, uh, the worst trade in history, uh, probably worse than any trade that Arsenal ever made. Just saying. Anyway, it's pretty bad. That, that joke works in the UK, not so well here. <laughs> I don't like soccer, I just threw it out there. Um, so that's Turkey, and there's many other actors. So I think this is a good time to just take field questions. And if you want to move away from this topic and talk about South Africa and my views on that, we can do that as well. Dr. Hammond, how's that? Is that okay? Yes, I could just say something about UNICEF. Um, I've learned from people in Zambia, yes. Sudan, and so on, that they see UNICEF as a great threat to the church and to the culture because UNICEF provides key textbooks to educational departments all over Africa, and it's real with evolutionism, billions of years, secular humanism, LGBTQ, uh, all kinds of Marxist economics, junk like that. And so they see UNICEF in a deliberate attempt to uh, take their children away from their culture, heritage, religion, and so on, and promote a foreign ideology. So UNICEF is not seen that positively. The other thing is WHO and uh, US um, government pushing LGBTQ in Africa a lot. That's just another factor to bear in mind that many people have to see all these foreign entities you're talking about from the West, including the UN, mm -hmm. as uh, basically trying to wage a war against Christianity and our traditions. Oh, that's a very good point, Dr. Newman. I'm glad you raised it. Let me, let me address it in a couple aspects. Number one, what you're talking about wasn't present 30 years ago. 
That wasn't what the UNICEF was doing 30 years ago. What you're talking about with the United States, we weren't doing that before Barack Obama. Before Barack Obama, we didn't interject LGBTQ, LOPXYZ, you know, whatever, whatever the flavor of the week is that people are pushing here now. Um, and that's not a derisive comment. That's just people are getting a little bit carried away, um, creating identities that, that, that most of us never heard of. Um, that wasn't pushed until Barack Hussein Obama became our president. Uh, and I can tell you the case in which it became very apparent. Uh, in the first election when Obama became president, um, he had a lot of support from the gay community in America. Change, hope and change. And um, a lot of gay Americans supported him openly, and he won office. And then he spent four years in office and never once addressed an issue that was important to that community. So the next time he came up, uh, the election ran, and he lost five million votes. They weren't all gay Americans, but he lost a lot. So he lost a lot of votes, and he started thinking about why those votes. So during his second term in office, he did a number of things that, um, that started throwing attention towards gay issues, changed his view on gay marriage, came out sort of in support of it when he actively opposed it when he ran for office in his first term. Um, in Uganda, when I was there, we had a real serious problem. And that was that um, Uganda had written a new law, the legislature, that was going to go before President Museveni to sign, which criminalized homosexuality. Now, the problem with that is that it was already a crime in Uganda. So homosexuality was a crime, so why do you need another law? Well, the new law was written so that anyone that was aware of a person who was gay and didn't tell on them to the government could be sent to jail as a felon. So here's the scenario. We ran HIV programs in Uganda. We have a third party that's there. We fund them, we run these centers, and we have American staff here too. Someone comes in, let me just do a scenario, okay? Just bear with me here. I'm not a good actor. Well, actually, I'm okay, but let's, I'm gonna go through this, okay. So, so I come in and I go to the center and I've been sick and I'm concerned, so they give me a test. Uh, it's a rapid test and it's inconclusive. They come back for the blood test, they come back three days later. I sit down, the counselor says, listen, uh, Chris, um, well, I, let's talk Chris, I'm, I'm Melvin now, okay, I'm Melvin. So I'm Melvin. Um, Melvin, um, unfortunately, you've tested positive HIV. We'll do another blood test, but you have a responsibility to tell your sexual partners um, that you're positive if you're engaged in sex. Um, or if you try to donate blood, you can't do that. Um, and when people hear this news, obviously, if you're told you have cancer or a terminal illness, that's a traumatic moment. And for most people hearing they they're positive HIV, that's a pretty scary, especially 10, 15, 20 years ago. Today, people are more blase about it, but they shouldn't be. But it's a very, very nerve-wracking moment. So in that moment, if Melvin says, oh my goodness, I hope Steven's okay, I better tell him. <laughs> oh, so you're homosexual, are you now? If you don't, go now as a healthcare provider and tell the police that that guy's gay and they find out about it, guess what? You go to jail for seven years. That's what the law said. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. So distracting from a number of other events like Benghazi and things like that, uh, President Biden started a tiff with Museveni. And he said, don't pass this law. Okay. And then Museveni, of course, says, who are you to tell us what to do? We are Africans. We are Christians. We don't believe in that. And we will pass whatever law we want. I said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But this thing went up and up and up. The first tangible outcome of that is we were trained the Ugandan People's Defense Force for the mission against Al-Shabaab in Somalia. I had to cease all training. We're in the middle of training a battalion of peacekeepers to go stop a war at three people alive. And the impact of two political leaders making a political nonsense out of an issue that was not even a real issue was crazy. And in the middle of all this, we actually had a real incident happen. We had the police go to one of our centers and pretend to be homosexuals. Now, by the way, our centers don't treat homosexuals. They treat people for healthcare. 
Some of whom are homosexuals, some of whom are street prostitutes because it's a dangerous occupation. And some of whom are fishermen. Surprisingly, one fishing village had a 45% HIV prevalency rate. So we had a lot of fishermen who were coming into our clinic um, because of this. Anyway, so they came in and they tried to um, say that they were, you know, they, they're here to see someone. And so they wanted to get tested. Well, the, the, the person helping them stepped out, went into the room. They went up and went and started trying to open file cabinets to pull out files of people's personal information about their medical history to find the gays in Africa and in Uganda. So that's, that's what happened. So this whole thing ratcheted up and ratcheted up. It was a case of America preaching to Africans. And the irony is America preaching to Africans about Christianity. Isn't that ironic? The world's fastest growing religion is Christianity. And the world's fastest growing rate of Christianity growth is in Africa. And for us to preach to Africans about Christianity is, I think, a bit rich. Anyway, that's a personal view. Anyway, that's an anecdotal story about what happens when politicians start playing games with things like that, LGBTQ. Um, it's an issue that neither president should have gotten involved in. Museveni actually promised our ambassador he would veto that bill, and he lied. Uh, he actually signed it later on. I think they rescinded it at some point, but yeah, he lied to our ambassador. So anyway, that's a little bit of inside baseball there. You guys got some, <laughs> some, some stuff. Uh, okay, so other questions. Uh, what other questions do you all have? Yeah, I was just uh, curious. Uh, is it any truth that uh, ISIS are their training camps here? In South Africa? Yeah. Uh, I'm unaware of any training camps in South Africa. I don't have human intelligence sources on the ground. Although I do know a lot of South Africans, a lot of South Africans share information with me. Uh, that's a rumor that is unsubstantiated in my view. Okay. Uh, there is a lot of concern also about the uh, Boko Haram coming from Cabo Gata here. I would calm down and not worry about that. The distance between here, the flash to bank from there is quite far. That insurgency, which sadly I predicted years ago because of the lack of governance in the region, lack of development that was a fertile ground for the sort of nonsense to happen. Yeah, Mozambique, Cabo Delgado. Where you have South African troops right now and Botswana forces under Saturn. Um, that a lot of my viewers are concerned that that's coming here. It's not. No, it's not. It's a long way off and it's not coming here. And it's and it is not, it's not the insurgency people claim it is. It's a bunch of thugs who are claiming a label to get attention and and, and that's what they're doing. Um, these are sick people. They're packing bodies apart and dumping them wheelie bins. They're sick, twisted people. This is not. This is not a Muslim insurgency, although it claims to be. It's a bunch of criminals who are disguising themselves, and people are losing their minds. When the answer would have been simply for the fathom, the Portuguese forces to attack them instead of hiding at the Total refinery and allowing Palma to be destroyed and all those people killed. That was a failure of leadership and of the military. It's not up to the task. Were they hired by somebody in order to um, disrupt this gas Field. I have no information on that, and I don't believe that's the case because this happened long before the refinery started being built, and predates the discovery of the gas fields by a couple of years. Oh, okay. I predict this in 2012, 2013. Sadly, I was right. Sir, it's the uh, role of the drug trade in that particular in Mozambique. I'm not familiar with. I can tell you about the drug trade in West Africa. I can tell you about Mandrax and other things in South Africa. Uh, about New Zealand, where they found 30 years worth of cocaine floating off the coast. But I'm not aware of drugs being involved in that trade book. It doesn't mean it is, it just means I'm not aware of it. Cabo Delgado is a very difficult place to report on. It's remote. Mm. Uh, almost nobody there actually speaks Portuguese. <laughs> they speak indigenous languages, and almost nobody goes there. The last time that, that I think we had good boots on the ground was when Paul Leto from Vorbeck crossed the river and attacked the Portuguese and stole the uniforms and rifles and ammunition and continued his war in East Africa in 1917. <laughs> okay, that was fun. Come on. Come on. That was good. Dr. Hammond laughed. He's a historian. He appreciated that. All right, next question. 
I don't think most people know who General Bolitto Forbidden was. That's a shame. He was the German general right. in Tanganyika and he defeated everyone, ran rings around them. Jan Christian Smuts. He was still unbeaten. And when the British had arrived at Tom Saint, the war's over, Jeremy Swain, he said, I, I know, and they said, hand of your weapons. And he said, You haven't beaten us in battle. You want our weapons? Come and have a rematch. And he said, No, you can keep your weapons. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he went all the way back and actually marched through. He beat them all. Yep. He beat them all. He started with a conventional warfare at the beginning of the war, and he did it very much against the Governor General Heinrich Schnee, who thought they should just surrender to the Allied forces. And he's like, No, we have no order from Berlin surrendering. We are here with our troops, the Ascari, to defend this territory as part of the German Empire. And he did, uh, but he tried a conventional attack and he attacked and wiped out a huge British force, mostly of Indian troops that landed in Tanya. And then he tried to invade Kenya and the losses were too great. Um, he, he realized he couldn't sustain his force because there were only so many Germans there, the reservists activated and so many Africans. And he kept his ragtag army and his troops were very loyal to him because he endured the same sufferings and depredations that they did. He went shoeless until they could find tires and cut them into shoes, um, like his troops did. He, he didn't ride a horse most of the time because they lost most of their horses. Um, he walked like his troops did most of the time. He had the same rations. He dealt with malaria and, and everything else just like them. He was great respect. 20 years after the war, Paul Leto von Vorbeck returned to Dar es Salaam to a hero's welcome. To a hero's welcome. His former troops and Tanganyikans showed up and wept when he arrived. He was that much. Now, a lot of people uh, write about him, including a recent article, which is a biography of Jan Christian Smuts in the First World War, and says that um, Paul Leto von Vorbeck was very much highly overrated by those who wrote about him after the fact. Well, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. Okay. But that's my opinion. I think Dr. Hammond shares it. Um, in America, is there any kind of a stigma that to win? You know, okay, you're very good and powerful in fighting wars even miles away. Very powerful. Yeah. But what about when the infiltration is right in your government? I mean, you went from uh, Osama bin Laden, the biggest terrorist, and then this guy named Obama is now running for president. I mean, it's, it's so like, seems so in your face that it's like, it's possible that something passed by all the intelligence agencies in a massive sense. I mean, the guy's name is similar. How, how does that even endear the public? And uh, there's a lot of questions that I have about, and then I look at my own country, mm -hmm. we won a war against terrorists and, and communists, mm -hmm. totally, now that it's revealed to me by studying history. But what was done right in front of our face was actually the, the real war that we lost. The political war. It's about the same in America, you know, Okay. Where does this guy come All right, fair question. Okay, so first off, um, no relation, no tie whatsoever, just a coincidence that Osama bin Laden has the first the same given name as uh, well, Barack. No, he doesn't have the same, but you're talking about Barack Hussein Obama. Now, uh, Obama is an American citizen by birth, um, and uh, he grew up in a system, but grew up in a way in which he allowed himself to be, to some degree, radicalized by leftist ideology. And despite the fact that he was very privileged, went to the highest schools, other people paid the tab, had a very luxurious life living in foreign communities as an expat, like in Indonesia. Grew up in Hawaii, luxury life, handed the uh, the editorship of the Harvard Law, Law Review, things like that. He seemed to somehow gravitate to the concept that America is unjust. That's very different than Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was a Saudi who had a very specific goal to overthrow the Saudi government and use any means to do it. And that included, you know, causing consternation in Afghanistan, causing problems 
in the Middle East, uh, and then eventually attacking America, who blamed for being stationed in Saudi Arabia. So that's a very separate thing. Uh, Obama is an American. While I disagree almost entirely with every political view that he has and he holds, um, he's, he was legitimate, and he was legitimately elected as our president, two terms. Um, and that's probably about as much as I'll say about Obama, because that's as nice as I can be about President Obama. Um, I won't be anywhere near as nice about, nice about our current president if you want to talk about him. Um, but um, his views are diametrically opposed to my views, and that's probably where I should leave that at. As far as South Africa having won a war, yeah. Um, the South Africa and the security forces were never defeated, um, but Paul Leto von Vorbeck was never defeated, but the war was lost. Uh, it was lost politically. Uh, it was also lost in the battlefield in Europe in 1918 because the Germans were offensive fail and they couldn't sustain it. Um, but you were betrayed um, by your political leaders who changed their mind on what was going to happen, where it was going at some point. Um, and that's the truth. Um, as far as U.S. being powerful militarily, we are. We can project our forces around the world, which is something absolutely incredible. No empire or country's ever had the ability to do that. So the Union could never do that. Um, Rome couldn't do that. And they could project forces, but it takes six months to get somewhere, you know, and they'd have them be dead from malaria, you know. But um, no country's ever had that ability. Of course, you know, the, the current age we live in, the technology makes it possible, and the vast wealth of the United States makes it possible. But, um, yeah, um, I'm not really sure where to go with your question, other than to say that the two are not related, and uh, despite the fact that a lot of people may not like Obama, who was a legitimate president, um, I just I took real issue with this. That's just we not going is we the political elites need yeah. to actually investigate by the military because now you, you're responsible for your national security. Mm. But not, I'm not talking about their rubbish nonsense agencies yeah. that they come up with because they're controlled by them. There's no check and balance. Oh, you know that they're not just apps. It's not just a complete computer. Now, just done well, by television and here's public. sure. Here's where you and I may differ. I don't know, but here's where we may differ. Uh, in my view, in a in a democratic or free society, those are different terms, and I'm using them loosely. A military is subordinate to civil authority, and that's how it works in our system. So, I was told a very interesting story by my former boss, who's still alive. He was a, a speechwriter for General Bernard Rogers at NATO when he was in charge of NATO. And he's a well-known author who wrote a book about um, Rommel and his tactics in the first and the second world war, derived from his experience in the first world war, his book and tactics. Um, Colonel Luther. Um, he, he said that you know when he wrote for General Rogers, there's something interesting. When there was a White House function, now in Africa this would be the case, but in a White House function, the number one priority, of course, is the Vice President, right? And we have the Speaker of the House and the Senate and all. Take a guess, number one through whatever, when does the first general officer in the U.S. military get in line? One through five, six, ten. Where do you, where do you think we stand? To show you where the military stands in the order of things. Despite the nonsense about the military industrial complex, there's some truth to that. But take a guess, what number ranking do you think we are? Anybody? 15, 16. 15, 16. Good guess. Anybody else? 34th. Wow. 34th most important official in the U.S. government is the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. According to the White House protocol for events. So, what does it tell you? It tells me that our system is set up so that we are subordinate to the civil authority. Now, whether civil authority is legitimate, honest, transparent, that's a separate issue. And that's not for the military to decide. The last thing, in my view, that is appropriate is for military to usurp authority, even if a government is illegitimate, where they defend sovereignty. That's my view. And that, that's the oath I took. I, in America, we don't take an oath to the leader. It's odd when I, when I talk to political party leaders. Uh, yeah, did you want to, want to talk to the leader today? Uh, you mean the Fuhrer? <laughs> that's, that's the leader. Right? In South Africa, you guys said, they said leader. 
I, the head of your political party. I'd like to talk to that person, not the leader. But um, in, in, my, in, our, in my view, we are subordinate, and the last thing we should be doing is overthrowing governments. It's inappropriate and wrong for militaries to do that, in my view. Even in a legitimate government. Absolutely. That's nonsense. Who, who, who makes me the authority to call, make military governments? Really? The constitution, your constitution mm -hmm. says that the, the American people have a right to take up arms against tyranny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Not so. That's, that's the American people. What the heck is happening in your country? Your country has yes. become the biggest menace. I think it's even a bigger menace than China. I mean, we know what you think of China. America is in a very dangerous place. And they have a tremendous effect on the world. Now that man sitting in the White House shouldn't be there. We won't get an argument. The troubles that we are having now is because he's there through an illegitimate election. And you are in such a you are in such a stranglehold. You're gonna give me in trouble in my channel, man. Here, please don't say that. One report the truth. They censor everybody. Yep. Your criminal situation. They will. Your courts are corrupt. There is a level of corruption in your country that has actually taken hold. Your country has been taken hold of by outside forces. Mm -hmm. World Economic, Economic Forum people, those uh, globalists from Dallas, those are the people now who are running your country, they're running Canada, they're running the EU. And what is happening now is that they're becoming isolated. Because we have an, uh, a multipolar world, and the American dollar is about to crash. One of these days, there's going to be an alternative to it in terms of the petrodollar, and that's when the, that's when America just collapses. And the thing is, it's what Biden is doing is actually work, working there. He and his handlers are working there to create that collapse. And your military and your people need to rise up. I agree. So that's not a question, that's a statement, but I'll address your statement. Uh, so you believe the solution is for the military to roll out of tanks, out of concerns, and overthrow the government. Yes. I'm not embellishing, that's what I believe you said. All the American people ever, but that government's got to go. Your freedoms have been eroded completely. Oh, there's no doubt about that. We've seen collusion between the federal government and Twitter, for instance. We have demonstrative evidence they've polluted the fruit and silenced our speech. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But that is not the role of the military. The last election was a coup. Okay, okay. Now you can see it because you can see it. <laughs> All right, so, uh, yeah, I'm talking over this now so I don't lose. I, look, I've worked very hard to maintain this channel, please. Um, those are forbidden words on this censorship platform. I ask that you not. No. You don't have freedom of speech. That's a reality. But if you want to reach people, you have to have a platform. It's the First Amendment. Second Amendment is the right to keep them their arms. No but a private company doesn't have to give you freedom of speech. Yeah, the government can't censor. The problem is they're colluding together. So back, let me get back to this gentleman's point. So my view, again, these are my views. It's inappropriate for our government to overthrow. Myanmar's government under An Young Sung Kyi was very corrupt. And the military overthrew the government. They had no right to do that. And then they began oppressing people. They've given kangaroo court trials to opposition politicians and executed them. Because military leaders took over. What gives them the right to do that? They don't. It, now, that, it, the Soviet Union, different system. Our system, the military subverted civil authority, and I subscribe to it. I think that's appropriate. It's not appropriate for us to overthrow the government. Um, if it's illegitimate, it's for the people to make that decision, not for the military. It's a very dangerous ground. It's my view. We have very different views, obviously. 
As far as America being the greatest threat to the world, I disagree wholeheartedly. America is currently rudderless. I'll agree with that. We have, have leadership that is corrupt and maybe not mentally stable, to say to say it kindly. <laughs> to say it kindly. To say it kindly. But I don't think America's the greatest threat to the world. America has it is, it has and is continuing to do things. What do you think is happening in Ukraine? That's a proxy war, fought on Oh, obviously you don't watch my broadcast. You don't watch my broadcast, do you? Since February twenty third. That's exactly what I've been saying. Well, I told people that's the America's not a threat. They are the people who have instigated that war. So one action makes us a threat to every action in the world. You look at the aggregate. It's a major, major thing. I mean, they're talking about a nuclear Armageddon and things like that. I don't know if that's going to No, it's not going to happen. But that's the type of thing that they do. Yeah. And they we also supported proxy wars in Angola and Mozambique. That war is causing an economic collapse, which is... Who's economic collapse? Europe. 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 Europe is causing Europe economic collapse. The Germans abandoned the nuclear power industry. They cut off 40% of the electricity. Now they're in trouble. That was their decision. What's that? Oh, people claim the United States did it. I don't dispute that. What's that got to do with the price of tea in China? What's it got to do with the German economy? You know what's happening there? You know what's happening there? I've spent a third of my life in Germany. They have small businesses closing down. Yeah. The cost of uh, yeah. gas and the cost of petrol, etc., is crippling the people. Mm -hmm. And you want to see the cries coming up from the people. But you won't see it. It's not in the press. They don't talk about it. I, I talk about it, Funny but the German press doesn't. You can see it in the Daily, uh, daily, uh, daily Mail's uh, comment section. Those yeah. people are fully aware of what's going on there. The Daily Mail in the yeah. UK. And if it carries on like that, yes. we don't see an economic collapse because they want an economic collapse. The United States federal government has $31.4 trillion of federal debt. Our state, counties, municipal governments add that debt, it's over $55 trillion. When you add unfunded pension liabilities and you add to that mortgages, corporate debt, credit card, personal debt, the United States owes itself over $200 trillion. Our economy is $26 trillion a year. I'm well aware of the coming economic collapse, and I've talked about it for a very long time. It's a very real possibility. My government has exacerbated this situation for 15 years by printing fictional money through quantitative easing. Yeah. The only reason the euro exists as a currency is because of the bastardization of our currency by our Federal Reserve and collusion with our presidents like Bush and Obama, who destroyed our currency. If the dollar hadn't been undermined, the euro would have collapsed when Greece, Italy, yeah. Spain, Portugal, and Ireland were in danger a few years ago. Only the Germans saved them, and only because there's two currencies left in the world, reserve currencies, the dollar and the euro. But there wouldn't be a euro if it had been the United States. We'll see. We'll see. You didn't accumulate $31 trillion of debt overnight. This is no, it's 50 years. Yeah, and it's been a deliberate thing. Of course it is. It's, it's, it's gone from, it has gone from $11 trillion 12 years ago to $32 trillion. And why? Because they want to destroy the American economy. And George Soros said the biggest impediment to the new world order is America, and they're after you. And you, they're sitting there in the White House, in your intelligence agencies, on your judiciary, etc. They've infiltrated every single aspect. Now, of everything you just said is an allegation, and I need oh, proof no, allegations. No, I don't dispute it. Sorry. Yeah, let's change. Presentation. Make a question and yeah. Yeah. Because we're getting into debate. That doesn't make sense. Do we have another question? 
about Africa, about South Africa. Chris, can I throw something in? You may, please. Um, Any barbs on this question? <laughs> I'm not understanding this. Um, when when uh, the British gave us our republic back, or gave us the republic. 1960. You talking about that? Yeah. Okay. Did the British actually leave? Meaning, did they re relinquish their control over South Africa fully, or did they just pretend that they have moved on, and then the people that were in that they put into power back then were just the puppets, and are still to this day the puppets of the British? Wow, that's that's a whole bailiwick to dig into. <laughs> but I guess suppose, I suppose you, you'd have to ask the question: Did the British want the South Africans? to fight a war in Angola and um, use special forces to evade Zambia and Tanzania and Mozambique? If so, I suppose you could take that path. Um, so I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to answer that question. It's, it's an interesting question, but- Because yeah, the reason why yeah. I'm saying that is because if you look at all the major corporations mm -hmm. and, and uh, the gold, the mines and stuff like that, it's not owned by the South Africans, the majority. But that's two separate things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's two separate things. Yeah, you and Christians that the uh, multinationals have enormous economic control. But that didn't mean that they were overruling P.W. Butter when he chose to wage war against the communists and government. Yeah. That looked like an independent side of the nation. No, no, that's, I, that's, that's, I, that, then I would concur with that. I do get that, but is it not also part of an agenda to, to say to, um, how can I say, um, yeah. to bring the defenses of South Africa down so that they can still, it's easier for them to keep control over. Yeah, no, that, that's what I'm going to have. That, I don't think that at all because yeah. South Africa's military strength increased demonstrably from 1960 until 1989. They became one of the best militaries on the planet. Yes, I do. They've increased, but how effective is it? I mean, as far as what we can gather from, yeah. from where we were as a military yes. fighting force to where it is today. Well, it's, but that's that's two separate things altogether. Yeah. So yeah. you say that the numbers increase and it's grown, but its effectiveness and its ability to do it. No, no, but but yeah, okay, but the sad app is not the same. They're not the same. You you can't you can't compare the two. So that's that's a whole separate line of history yeah. we have to start with. So answering that question from 1960 to 1989, before we get to 94 dispensation, the point that Dr. Hammond is making that I and I agree with and reinforce is that it's clear that the governments under the National Party made decisions independently about their national security and about their economic security. They, they turned internally. Sassel took coal and made petrol out of it, a process developed by the Germans and perfected by South Africans. They built nuclear weapons. Yeah. They, Tunnel, arms store, they built the G5 and G6, the most advanced, or better than our artillery pieces. Even to this day, they're better. And the Roy Fall. The Roy yeah. That was all done, those were South African decisions. Now, you might ask, did they do it because the Brits wanted it? Okay, but, but they didn't have political control. They clearly had their own political control and they set their own destiny. Um, in fact, the South African government went into Soweto with the police in 85, much to the consternation of the British government. Yeah. They were complaining about it vocally. So, but when it comes to economic control and oligarchies and monopolies, there's some merit to people holding resources, but you can own an Anglo-American. It's traded on the stock market. If you're, if you and Musk, you probably go buy it, <laughs> you know, and then you control it. So, yeah, that one, look, good question. Good question. Uh, right here, Ms. Joan. Um, with Eskom. Uh, Crisis. Yes. Oh, now we're talking about electricity. How much of it? So, Eskom is terribly corrupt, and 
Then I won't argue with that. They're charging us crazy rates, um, and things are still failing. Power plants are closing down. Yes, and a lot of people are saying that Eskom is getting funding to go green, or South Africa is getting funding to go green. How or what will you say about that? And okay. What What do you see as the outlook of Eskom or the power situation? Sure. Okay, green funding is a scam. Let me start with that, okay? This is a scam. United States European Union promised last year 9.7 US billion US dollars to help the transition, the just energy transition. South Africa has immense coal reserves. It has the ability to provide all the electricity for this country and then some. In 19, in 1994, 1994, South Africa produced 42% of all commercial electricity delivered in sub-Saharan Africa. A country of 34 million people produced enough electricity to power the rest of Southern Africa, and it had enough for 42% of the entire continent. 750 million people. Now, Sub-Saharan Africa is 1.3 billion people, and you've got um, you've got 60 million here. So that's the first thing. Immense coal reserves. So in my view, you should be building coal-fired power plants 15 years ago. New technology with better scrubbers to reduce the carbon dioxide and sulfur output into the environment, and then produce the power. I predicted this crisis in 1994, and again in 2000 when I advised Botswana and South Africa to build power plants because the ANC made a promise in 94 that we would deliver electricity to the people who historically didn't have access to it, who weren't on the grid. And that was a lot of people. So when you do that, that means much more energy is going to be absorbed. What I didn't predict was the growth of the platinum industry, which is a massive consumer of electricity in the Northwest province. And that really had a big impact on it. So the green energy, we are going to give you, we've given not a penny, not one cent, we're going to give you $9.7 billion so you stop burning coal. But the Germans who abandoned their nuclear energy industry, which is entirely safe and reliable for 50 years, learned the wrong lesson from Fukushima. There was an earthquake and a tsunami in Japan. The Japanese built a, nu a, a, a nuclear power plant on a fault line and then failed to follow the safety measures when the tsunami hit. And they abandoned the plant, and that's why there's a meltdown. There is no tsunami in Germany. Trust me, I know this property. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. The Baltic could rise up. It could be Floyd the Alps. It's not going to happen. There are no tectonic plates that are affecting earthquakes there. And they abandon 40% of electricity. France gets 85% of its energy electricity from nuclear power to this day. And they continue to build new power plants. So they abandon it. They put themselves in a position where they're dependent on Russian gas. It was unnecessary. And now they're dependent on South African coal. So we're going to pay you not to burn coal so that you ship it to Richards Bay, load it onto ships which burn kerosene, the most polluting source of carbon emissions, and ship those cargo ships all the way to Germany to go to a coal-fired power plant and burn it there. Now, for the environmentalists in the room, I ask you, how does that reduce carbon? It's a scam. It's a scam. Burn the coal here. Power the country here. Safe, reliable, affordable electricity is essential for life in the 21st century. 643 million Africans on this continent have no commercial electricity, not one kilowatt hour. The energy transition to solar and wind. South Africa's government, the ANC, just the most southern government, two years ago, March 27th, they announced an emergency power plant. It's two years ago. 2,000 megawatts of emergency power generation for South Africa. That represents somewhere between two and two and a half percent of your current generation capacity. I don't know what the current amount is because a few years ago it was 52,000 megawatts of installed capacity, but they decommissioned, they broke it down. So it's somewhere a little bit below that, but let's say it's about 2%, 2,000 megawatts. 
That included wind, solar, and car power ship. Immediately, car power ship, corrupt deal. They, they argue it, they take it to court, it takes months, they solve it. Then the environmentalists, oh, the environment, this ship's gonna pollute the seas. It's sitting at dock, it doesn't move. What sea is it polluting? Anyway, so March 7th, they'll make a determination in the environmental ministry about whether that permit will be issued for car power ships, the Turkish company, to deliver these, this electricity. If that is approved on March 7th, it will take 12 to 16 more months before the first kilowatt of electricity comes out of the 1,220 megawatts of power from three ships off the coast of South Africa. That means that three years and six months after the emergency ANC plan to give you 2% more power, it's on the scam. People are going off grid and that's reducing the stress on the grid, which helps everybody else out. But that's only for people who can afford it. And not everybody can afford it, that's the problem. So. Can I answer your question? I got off track a little bit there. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Don't want to intimidate you. Looking like, like I was staring there. And there was a gentleman before I came. Do you think that all this, what they call load shedding power cuts, is um, encouraging people to get solar panels, which is the most yes. supplied from China? That's both well, well, are true. Yes. Is China the one who is promoting? I haven't seen China promoting. I don't think there's a real need for China to promote. South Africans are hot full and they, 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 they know that they need electricity. So I just talked to someone today who's going to install power, power. But the thing for me is that South Africans should have been doing this five or 10 years ago. This has been apparent for a long time. But, but if you're in it, if you're in South Africa, even though it's coming up on you, you know, okay, well, I didn't have power for two hours the other day. Next thing you know, it's eight hours a day and your refrigerator is spoiled. Your, your medication is no longer good. You have to get new. The, the ventilators don't work at the hospital. You can't work because there's no power. The robots are out, so pedestrian got hit by motors. All these things complicated, and that's where we're at now. But yes, the Chinese produce most of the solar photovoltaic panels. I don't know that they're promoting it. They don't have to. Everyone knows the situation. They want the panels. You did have a question. Be very patient. Yes, sir. Uh, just was going back to another changing gears again. Yes, sir. Um, a lot of people have been saying that Americans are very powerful. They've got the aircraft carriers and the mm. fleets. But warfare's changed. They're saying that, that this is actually obsolete because all they need is a few S 400s and they can take those ships out for much a fraction of the price. Mm -hmm. um, and is this true? Is that would you say that that's true? That you can't actually really project power against Russia because of that? But it's, that's a very good question. Thank you for that. Um, I don't know if aircraft carriers the best example, but yes, we have aircraft carriers, but not a lot of them. We only have, I think, like seven or something like that. It's not a lot, maybe eight. We uh, we don't have, what's that? We got none. Yeah, well, the Brits have none too. The Chinese have one and they bought a used one from the French or something. Yeah, Russia has one. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but the US military is well aware of the changing nature of modern warfare. Uh, and at the War College, that's something I worked on. We talked about asymmetric warfare digital, satellites, GPS, all of that playing a role biological vectors, all these different things that can happen, shutting down power grids, shutting down communication networks, all that plays a role. Um, they're very well, and the US uh, military, despite some wokeism creeping into our forces that we've seen of late, um, is quite capable of delivering these things and projecting force anywhere around the world. We can do it from above, we can do it at sea, we can do it through the air, we can do it from launching from somewhere. Um, the money that we poured into trying to end communism from 1945, until 1989 is uh, put us in a position to have such advanced technology and we've developed even further since then. So yeah, the, the asymmetric warfare threat of today, including terrorism and other things, is something we're well aware of. We spent a lot of time wargaming and working on it, developing documents and developing capabilities to deal with it. That doesn't mean that we're invulnerable. 
we're not. We remain vulnerable just like everybody else, particularly when it comes to power and communications. That we're very vulnerable. Yeah, so there won't be a fleet anyway, because of X1. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, there are countermeasures for that, which I can't get into. Yeah. The other countermeasures. Sir. You've already alluded to maybe some people missed the there's a real worry about a war with China. Yes. But you made the comment that uh, China can't afford a war because they can't feed themselves, they can't fuel themselves, they depends on imports and exports. Could you want to just check that way? Because everyone thinks China's about to make someone, America's going to get a war with China, and then you've got a two-front war, war with Russia, war with China. Is, how feasible is that? Uh, can China afford uh, a massive war? Well, I'll answer the first question, and then the second question. How feasible is it? Um, it's feasible because people make dumb decisions. I mean, Hitler never should have evaded Russia in June. Should have done it in April if he's going to be okay. Uh, even then, the Russians will never give up. They just keep going back and back and back. So it was a question of what people, and same with Napoleon, you know, same thing. Uh, people make dumb decisions all the time, uh, and they make irrational decisions to go to war. I mean, what in God's green acre are we doing fighting a proxy war in Ukraine? I mean, first of all, people like it benefits the defense industry. A little bit, a few billion dollars here for a couple of companies. That is not why the wars happen. It's another reason for it. And it, it, in my view, it has to do with hiding and covering up other activities, but that's personal uh, from having been inside the wire. Um, that makes no sense. Uh, first off, Zelensky is hardly a, a patriot. He's hardly a Democrat. I mean, the guy has banned opposition parties. He has banned the use of Russian and one third of his population is ethnic Russian. Okay, well, should we ban Kosa here? I don't think that would go over very well, you know, or Afrikaans, that would not go over very well. Um, so he's also um, gotten $145 billion from us and then is an ungrateful turd. He came to Congress, which is a very big privilege to speak in front of our Congress, whether you agree or not, it is. Um, it's rare that a foreign leader speaks in front of our Congress. And he said, thanks for the $45 billion. That's not enough. Give me more. What's that, buddy? <laughs> What's that? I want an accounting. I want an accounting where the other $145 billion went before you get any more money. What was he used for? What was he used for? So uh, as far as, as far as, okay, so continue with the China thing. So a war is possible. People make dumb decisions and emotional decisions at the worst time, okay? Can China afford a war? In the end, no, they can't. The Chinese, when I say they can't feed themselves, I'm not making this up. China can't produce enough food to feed its own people. It's a major importer of foodstuffs. Also from places like Ukraine and Russia. So that doesn't benefit them, even though they've sided with Russia because they're getting Russian grain, they're not getting Ukraine grain. Um, but those aren't even, by the way, when the, when the Ukraine war started, oh, starvation, the world's going to starve. Russia and Ukraine are all the world's wheat. No, they're not. The two together only make about one-fifth of grain exports for wheat around the world. Australia, the United States, Canada, we're the major wheat producers that export all around the world. I don't know how this got lost on people. That doesn't mean there won't be shortages somewhere, especially in Africa. In East Africa, it relies on that grain. But it's nonsense. In Sudan this year, they had a bumper crop of wheat, but you can only sell wheat to the government. You can't sell it on the streets. So it sat in piles, rotting, as vermin ate it, and the rain ruined it because the government didn't buy it because they didn't have any money. So they had a record wheat harvest, and now they're hungry, they're not wheat. It's nothing to do with Ukraine. It has to do with bad, micro, bad macroeconomic, policies, macroeconomic policies. So the Chinese can't afford a war. People are always like, well, the Chinese, the Americans are holding the Chinese because they hold all their debt. Well, that's nonsense. What is the single largest creditor to the United States national debt? The $31 trillion stock debt? Who holds most of that? Which country owns most of that debt? America. Americans, American insurance companies, American pension funds, American citizens, group savings bonds, and treasury bills and notes own 67% of that debt. 
There's one thing in the Constitution that we are required to pay. Not salaries, not Social Security, not welfare, not foreign assistance, our debt. We are required by our Constitution, our most basic law, that we must pay our debt. We are in no jeopardy whatsoever, despite the nonsense coming out of Washington, D.C., of defaulting on our debt. The United States government takes in hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue every single month of the year. And we take in more than enough revenue to pay to service our debt, pay down the debt that's due and pay down the interest on it. That's all a lie. It's a fiction. It doesn't mean our dollar isn't in trouble. It doesn't mean we don't have a problem there. But the story being told now is pure fiction. It doesn't take an advanced economic degree to figure this out. It just takes a few minutes to look at the revenue stream and look at where the money's going. So and what can you do when you start to pay a huge loss on your, on your debt? You cannot support a trillion dollar military. Our yeah. debt servicing is only 8% of our budget. But it's growing like anything. Well, sure it is. But today it's 8%. And I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm talking about these politicians saying that we will default on our debt this year. We won't. Without a debt ceiling raise, we're not going to default on our debt. It won't happen. It's impossible. Unless they just don't pay the debt. They have the money to do it. That's the point I'm making. We can come back to that in just a moment. I want to finish this China thing. We'll be asking. So, so China can't afford it because... What is China going to do? So we're the largest single. The Chinese at one point owned 9% of our outstanding debt. But about six or seven years ago, they started offloading that because they needed cash and they started selling the bonds that they held. People bought it in the secondary market. So the Chinese are now the second largest foreign holder of our debt behind Japan, which traditionally has been the largest holder of U.S. foreign debt, uh, our domestic debt. Then So it's Japan and then China, then Germany and the U.K. They're much lower, about 2 or 3% of those guys. So if China goes to war with us, all that debt is useless to them. They're not going to get paid. They rely on the interest payments to come from that to help fund their government their activities. They can't feed themselves. Their military is not up to par with ours yet. It's rapidly improving. It's getting much better. Its capability is getting better, but it's not there yet. And they are in a difficult position of defending Asia. They can't launch a war to America except for maybe nuclear missiles. Let's hope they don't do that. But they can't project their forces here, whereas we can project our forces there. We have basic agreements in the Philippines, Japan, Okinawa, Guam. They can send a balloon. What's that? They can send a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> they can send a balloon. So, by the way, people lost their mind about that the other day, the balloon. And I said, I said, okay, guys, I was at the Stellenbosch Blind Club, and I was, that was coming out. And I said, okay, so you see, I held up my mobile. You see this? You're worried about spies? Everything on this phone is spyware. Everything on here tells somebody where I'm at exactly right now, what I'm doing, where I've been, how fast I was driving. Damn it. <laughs> Can I go to court for that ticket? I can't refute it. I was going too fast. 120, I was going for you. Anyway, it's all on it. And then there are thousands of satellites overhead every moment looking at us. Satellites are capable of identifying your face. Couldn't do that 30 years ago. So people freaking out over spy balloons need to calm down. Um, and an F-22 shooting a missile one, I think was a bit of an overreaction. But anyway, that's just my thought on it. Um, if you want to see what's going on in U.S. military base, there's a little thing called Google Maps, and it gives you very good clarity. You can see our installations, you see our training facilities down to where you can identify vehicles on the ground and sometimes individuals. It's all through commercial satellites. So, yeah, the Chinese, but the Chinese also have police stations in New York, in Chicago, in Paris, in London. That's a violation of our sovereignty. They probably have a cape town. I don't know if they did, but I bet they did. Um, that needs to be dealt with. So China cannot afford a war, in my view because they have to defend the homeland and they will suffer the carnage. Unless they launch nuclear weapons, they're not going to strike America. We hope they won't they be drawn in? Did, but first, can I ask your question? Yeah, sorry, sorry. sorry. I, if you could just uh, add one thing. Yes. Do you have an opinion on 
the fighting value of Taiwan forces Republic of China. Oh, oh yes, yes. That's just what we're doing. succeed in so defending the island. Okay, the question is from Dr. Hammond and this gentleman, Fetching. No, it's Five, five. The question is a similar question about the yeah. capacity and capability of Taiwan's forces. Well, I see they're preparing war games to attack Taiwan. So yeah, I'm saying America's got it all its fleet already in the area, and they indirectly, well, they have directly said that they will defend Taiwan. Yes, and but they will become aside a from that, the point is how, how good is the Republic of China versus, uh, because they've got a limited area to defend. Yes. But, but, they are outnumbered tremendously, and, and uh, the resources of ammunition are endless for the Chinese Communists. But Taiwan's military is world class, one of the best militaries yeah. in the world. They are very patriotic, they're very loyal, they're very committed, and they're very well trained. The aviators, yeah. the, the seamen, the soldiers, they're very, very good. I would put them in par with the old SADF, it may be even better these days because of technology. They're really good. They will defend Taiwan to the death, in my view. In my yep. I could be wrong, but I've, but I've, I've dealt with the Taiwanese, even though they don't officially come to our schools. <laughs> but they do come to our schools, but they're forced to wear civilian clothes because they're not recognized as civilians. Right. But uh, it's political. But yes, they're, they're world class and they'll defend yeah. themselves. Well, I mean, you, you've got your typhoons class subs in the area as well. We've got subs, we've got bases. We just negotiated new basing rights with the Philippines on Luzon and other islands. Uh, they, the Philippines asked us to come back. Now, remember famously, in the early 1990s, we abandoned most of our military bases in the Philippines because of Mount Pinatuba. It blew up and it landed all the ash on Clark Air Force Base, and it was economically not viable for us to spend billions repairing it. Plus, we were drawn down the peace dividend and all that nonsense. Um, and then um, Subic Bay, which is one of the largest naval bases in the world, we abandoned that too. The Filipinos took it over, but uh, Clark Air Force Base. So we're now going back to bases there. And we're also renegotiating the rights of some of the bases we have in Japan. We're everywhere in Japan. I was in Japan for a World Cup for a month, following the spring boxing and rugby. Went to 18 matches in 2019 in the pool stage out of 40. Well, 17. The New Zealand, um, Italy match was canceled. It's time for the Haggis. Um, we have a military base everywhere. I stayed at our bases, <laughs> used our shopping centers, stayed lodging, which was affordable, that sort of thing. So we have bases all over Japan, particularly from the middle down. And of course, South Korea, we have a presence there, massive bases, and a small number of troops, about 25,000. Massive presence there, um, and South Koreans also. If there's a conflict with China, it's very, very likely that Japan and South Korea could become embroiled in as well. Where do you see uh, um, uh, Singapore? I mean, Singapore is on to the teeth. They are, but they're small and they're far away from there. They wouldn't really. Where would they, they stand? I mean, they well, they would sit neutral. In my opinion, yeah, I think they'd be neutral. All right. Um, was did I, I did I answer your question? I forget if I did. I'm sorry. Did you go more? Okay, sorry. Okay. Um, okay. Any more questions? It's very warm. You've all been very generous with your time. Listen to me. Again, these are my views and my opinions, but they come from four decades of experience as a private to a colonel at the highest levels, intermediate in between, all over Europe, all over Africa and Middle East. Uh, doesn't mean I'm right. Also, doesn't mean I'm wrong. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's your, 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 yours. Listen to and, and take from what you like. Uh, I want to thank you for coming tonight. It's a great privilege for me to have this opportunity to speak to you. Also, for this audience, which I believe is almost entirely, if not entirely, an audience of faith, it was heartwarming for me to share the story about the abomination of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Um, when Dr. Hammond talked about the March of Life, it, it triggered that for me to share that with you, to let you know that there are people around the world, whether they're Christians or Muslims or Jews or just people who are you know, maybe agnostic or whatever, but people who care about life and are fighting for life, for those who are the weakest and most vulnerable, those in the world. 
So I, I hope that's important to you, it was important to me. So thank you very much for your time. Um, there's a few unresolved questions and people want to poke and ask questions. I'll hang around uh, and thank you so much for your time. God bless and, oh, sorry, Dr. Hammond. Could you just add how people can oh. access your sure. videos and get sure. contact with you as we report? Absolutely, sorry about that. So you can look for me on the censorship platform of YouTube if my channel is complete after science comments. Um, it's called Chris White Africa, you can find it there. And then you can also find me on Odyssey Rumble, which are free speech platforms, but nobody goes there because they're difficult to watch, particularly from South Africa. Um, I'm also now playing with the Chinese Communist application TikTok. And people said, but it's spying on you. Yes, and so is YouTube. Sorry, thank you. Um, I'm using TikTok, even though it's got some questionable content, because there are a lot of people who tune in there for short things, and they are interested in the politics, the economics, and the history that I that I share with people and talk about. So I'm hoping to draw, draw viewers over because I'm being shadow banned by this platform because of my political views and because I tell the truth and they don't like it. Um, they don't like objectivity. So Chris White Africa on YouTube and on the other platforms. And then on TikTok, it's at Africa Matters. So that's where I'm at. You can also find me on Gitter, Twitter, and all that other social media nonsense. I'm on Facebook, but it's, it's for old times. Anyway. <laughs> all right. I know that's a woman time. I'm just saying that. You get the joke. Anyway, so uh, thank you all so much, and that's where they can find me. Mm -hmm. <laughs>